We, uh... I'm Keith. I'm an alcoholic. This is Dick. He's a real bad alcoholic. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the ask it basket. Um, the first question is, can you give an example of AA principle of love in action? Um, the answer is, I've been here this weekend, and you guys model love in action. I, uh, not only the way you treat me, which, of course, is the most important thing, but, <laughs> but the love and respect you have for one another. Um, I know, and because I know Scott, and, and I know Steve, and I know a number of my privilege to know a number of the people in this area. And um, you're an into-action bunch. I know how many of you go in and out of prisons and jails and institutions and everything else. That's love in action. You know, someone who sits home is not grateful. Gratitude is an action. And uh, that's what old Hal Marley used to say. Hal used to say, I try to live my life with an attitude of gratitude. He said, every day when I wake up, I'm grateful for three things. One, I'm alive. Two, I'm sober. Three, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, unfortunately, Hal only has two of those three things because we lost him. But, uh, but I know he's sober, and I know he's grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in a big meeting. So action and lo- uh, love and action is what you men do. And it's my privilege to be part of you. You on? I'm on. You're on. We're on. What criteria do you look for in a sponsor? Actually, uh, I've had uh, four sponsors. And they've, the first one I was assigned to, the second one I kind of got assigned to, and I picked the third and fourth, and they're both... Um, men that I just respected the way they lived. Um, they were active in the program. They did annual house cleanings. They worked hard. Um, and there are people that I followed and have always followed. And um, they are people who grew each year. It wasn't a matter of having a number of years. It was a matter that every year they were continuing to grow. But they were out doing service work. They were out doing, working in their groups. They were the people that people were attracted to because they were so busy helping other people. But they also had balance in their lives. Um, Bill has been married for 60 years. He's the one I talked about who's taking care of his uh, wife who has Alzheimer's and feels like that is a privilege. My current sponsor, John, uh, has been married for 20 years and has a wonderful marriage and has um, is responsible with his with every area of his life and, and helps me to be that way. So I look for somebody who's living the way I want, would like to live, not just the talk, not what they say in the meetings, but who's living uh, the way that... And I make sure that they have a sponsor and that they go to meetings and they have a home group and all the things that are going to be required of me, they have. Good question. What do you do to become more comfortable with death? Uh, aches and pains of growing old. Um, but uh, seriously, uh, and I've talked to some, some of the gentlemen about that this weekend. Um, what I've done is I think the return to the church of my childhood had a lot to do with my comfort level because I stopped dictating. You know, it's, it's God as we understand him, not God as we created him. And, uh, you know, I, I created a God that would let me do a lot of stuff that the church I grew up in said I shouldn't be doing. And so I was constantly, I, I, I was like a drop of water on a hot skillet. I was, you know, bouncing all over the place emotionally. But once I made up my mind that I was going to surrender to the rules of the church in which I grew up, and I, they were going to dictate morality, not me. You know, uh, my head is not a good church place. Uh, you know, 
You know, the old timers told me uh, early on, the only thing you need to know about God is you ain't it. And yet I was playing God by determining what's moral, what's immoral, what's right, what's wrong, what I can do. And I could do a lot of stuff you couldn't do because you weren't a member of the church in my head. Um, but I was. And uh, somebody, I said to somebody one time, I said, you know, I don't like organized religion. And, you know, a couple of years later, I ran into that person again, and they saw that I was involved in organized religion. And they said, you told me at one time you didn't like organized religion. And I, so I figured out the problem. The problem was I wasn't a pope. If I'd have been a pope, I would have loved organized religion. Because <laughs> I could have made the rules. So living my life based upon a set of spiritual principles makes me more comfortable with death. Now, I still don't invite it, but I'm more comfortable with it. And the other thing that helps me is I live in a retirement community where almost everybody except my wife's older than me. Please discuss AA's money problems, anonymous giving, and the money limit to giving. And um, we talked about this earlier, that if we, uh, we serve um, uh, freely, then we're not in bondage to anybody, which means that we can't be dependent upon Hazel to buy so many books or a treatment center to buy so many books, or we can't have certain people who could give a lot of money. So we're, the limit right now, I believe, is $2,000 for a, a year-long uh, donation. Um, and that could be from an estate of somebody who dies. That could be from somebody who just wants to write that check and send it to GSO or whatever. And and that's not enough money that would truly influence the fellowship. So uh, and there are not ways around it like there are with political packs and stuff like that. Is that's it? Um, we 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 actually don't have a great deal of problems with money. But last year. Our, we made we sold a lot of fourth edition big books when they first came out. I, we don't know why everybody bought a fourth edition big book because if you go to meetings, it's obvious that not everybody's reading them. But but they but they <laughs> but I think <laughs> but I, but I, I think I, I think that that people thought that it was going to be a collector's item because it was first edition like the first, and so a lot it generated a lot of income, and then that income fell off. And this last year, our income was down. And we have Class A trustees, the non-alcoholics. And this Class A trustee got up and he said, well, I'm not a member of your fellowship. But he said, I think the giving in AA is down. And I have observed this, that people who, whose lives have been saved because somebody did a 12-step call on them uh, are grateful and they seem to give more. And people who do 12-step work with new people seem to be grateful because they... they they get that gratitude back, and they seem to give more. Grateful people give more. How many people in here think the 12-step work is on the increase in their area? Out of 93 areas, three delegates raised their hand. How many people think the 12-step is on the work is on the decline in your area? 90 out of 93. And he made the point that when we do 12-step work for people, the people who receive it and the people who give it are more grateful, and they're more likely to give money back to our fellowship. And so the key... That was one of the most profound things out of the whole general service conference last year. This is a good question. If a sponsee, we used to be pigeons before we became French. Um, <laughs> if a sponsee is not drinking yet, but not following directions, even though I have thoroughly carried the message, should he be dropped? Um, you know, the um, um, I uh, like to talk to the guys that I sponsor. And I like to talk to them about um, what it is they want to accomplish. And uh, I don't give them orders. I share my experience, strength, and hope with them. And um, I um, uh, eventually, if somebody talked to me earlier, sponsoring somebody who's you know been slipping and slipping and slipping and slipping, and I think eventually that becomes enabling. And, uh, you know, uh, so what I told a man that I was involved with who did that was, clearly, I don't have the message you need. I've carried the message to you, but I don't have the message you need because you're not doing uh, what I did. I'll help you find someone who may carry the message you need. And I did. And he related much better to that person and, and uh, is sober today. It says, how can you uh, uh, learn to love 
a sponsee that you don't like. You know, loving and liking are entirely different things. When I love someone, it's because I want the very, very best for them. I may or may not like them. I sponsored a guy one time who was so self-absorbed that it actually made me feel humble. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I kept telling Tom about what a pain it was. And so Tom just kept saying, you know, continue to carry the message, uh, and on and on. And, uh, and so finally, one night, a guy called me up, and he said, I'm moving, and I'm changing sponsors. You have not done a very good job with me. And I said to him, I couldn't agree more. I have not done a very good job with you, because you're the same jerk I met two years ago. <laughs> He actually laughed. <laughs> I've heard you speak of the talent inventory. Could you describe that? Uh, it says that we practice these principles in all our affairs, so actually there's no area of my life that I was, I was taught early on if I had a problem in any area of my life to do an inventory of that area. Uh, but it started with me when I was trying to figure out what to do with my talents. Um, and I actually went back through, just like we do with, the, uh, uh, with our resentments, our feelings, and all that, and I listed every activity I'd had, extracurricular, um, listed everything that I'd done, whatever jobs I'd had, and then next to the job, and I listed what the job was, what I did, not the title, but what I actually did. And this included activities in school. And then I listed next to it, how well did I work, how well did I do that? And then out here was, how well... How fulfilled was I in doing that? How natural did I feel in doing that? And, and I learned a lot about myself, but among the things was I had played, I played both high school and college football, and I did that. And when I got out here to why I did it and how well I fulfilled in it, I did it because I wanted to get lucky with the girls. I played music, and I did that because it brought great joy to me, and I felt at one with God when I was doing it. And my talent is in the communication and music and writing and those kind of things. So it gave me some guidance in the direction I needed to head. There are people that get excited about accounting. There are people that get... But, but I had a guy... Many times we get way off the track. And I, I mentioned this a couple times this weekend. A guy I was working with that uh, had eight years sobriety. He'd been a salesman for a long, long time. But he had gotten into sales just to get away from supervision so that he could be out on the road and drink and sell textbooks. What he was really good, gifted at was teaching... And, and counseling, and when we went back into his past and found that out, the next day he got a job. He'd been trying for a year to get a job. The next day he got a job in, in teaching and counseling, which served him well, and he served others well, but it had been hidden somewhere by his character defects and by a need to get out of under supervision. And so that's what this is. It's just inventorying the situation, why we're doing it, our motives, just like we do with any other part of our inventory. Do you believe the 12 steps will work for every major flaw or addictive trait that we may be faced with? Then it goes on to say, or do you suggest that we go to SA, OEA, and so forth? Lust is a major challenge. Pornography is poisonous, almost as powerful as alcohol. The Internet is wonderful, and it's hell at the same time. You know, um, a lot of us come into Alcoholics Anonymous with pornography problems. It's another form of self-will. It's the way I think it ought to be. If I enjoy it, it's okay. Um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has loaned, has given permission for people to use the 12 steps. How many times now? 300 and some times, I think. Four, over 400. Over 400 times they've given permission to use the 12 steps. So the 12 steps are a set of principles that I think will change our lives. But I don't see all these different things as separate problems. I see me as the problem, and the 12 steps change me. Now, I'm not suggesting that, uh, that we don't do other things, because that's not my call. When I sponsor guys in prison in North Carolina, uh, when they had about six months left before they got out, and they would go to you know, all the meetings they had, whatever it was, because you know, there, you know, there weren't seven or ten meetings a week. And then what I would suggest they do 
is uh, because I believe it's hard to work one program really, really well. And I, what I would suggest they do is continue to go to meetings, but begin to pray and determine where do I belong? Where do I belong? And that's the place you put your energy, your service work, all the rest of it. If you want to go and sit in other meetings, that's fine. You know, you couldn't have a meeting in a North Carolina prison system unless there was a volunteer there. And uh, if, like, the N.A. guys didn't show up, I live fairly close to the prison, they would call me up and say, would you uh, run over so they could have a meeting? And I'd run over, and they'd have an N.A. meeting. And if they called on me, I would pass out of respect for Narcotics Anonymous. I say, I'm not a member of N.A., I pass out of respect for Narcotics Anonymous. And... um, and then one night they called me because, you know, they also have church groups. And if a volunteer didn't show up, uh, you know, they would, they would call me because I was always willing to run over and so these men could meet. And uh, the uh, leader of the black Muslim group didn't show up. So I ran over there and I explained to him I was neither black nor Muslim. <laughs> but I was grateful to be there and to listen. And I learned things. And... Um, So I think that uh, if I can work one program well, I put all my energy into that. Now, I also go to Al-Anon meetings, and I sit and listen, and I do all that. There are a lot of things that can teach me information. But I don't think that I have a number of separate problems. I have one problem. Self-will run riot. My one problem is I'm the higher power. I determine what's best for me. And the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous get me out of self. And that's the solution, I think. I understand the concept of God getting all the credit. I hear men say in meetings, I'm sober today by God's grace and absolutely nothing I have done. However, I have done much work and action to ensure my sobriety and seat in AA. How do you communicate this double-edged sword? Or am I just an idiot? (laughs) First... To the last question, I doubt you're just an idiot because many of us have more than one skill. (laughs) And that goes back to the talent inventory. Uh, I I closed a meeting, you know, we we closed a meeting. I closed a meeting down to a DCM meeting in another area. Uh, a couple of times ago, and I said, and when you get ready to say the Lord's Prayer, a lot of times you say something at the beginning of it. Um, I've heard, who's your daddy at the young people's, whatever. But anyway, so I said, so I said, I said, who keeps us sober? And then we said the Lord's Prayer. And I had somebody come up afterwards and said, said I resent what you said because I feel like I make a contribution to it. So I just said, so I, I agree with him. I mean, I don't... Didn't need to argue with him. That's the way he felt. I do believe that all the power comes from God, but I also believe that unless I accept the gift and use it, that I will never be. And I think that that we do exercise our self-will properly when we accept the gift and use it. So it takes both God and me to get this thing done. But I cannot enact the power. It doesn't come from me. And so long as I know where the power is, God gives it to me as as his child. And I believe it's a heavenly father, just like I am the son. He is the father, but I have the, I have the keys to this place and all that, that power properly used. In trying to do God's will, how do you choose between two or more good alternatives? That's a very good question. Um, I have a friend from Charlotte, Jim L., who's a wonderful man. And Jim, you know, we always say do the next... Uh, do the next right thing. And Jim likes to alter that, and he says, do the next thing right. And I think what it means is that we put, you know, we do what's in front of us. <coughs> Whatever is in front of me is God's will. Dick knows I'm not wild about the job I'm doing now. I would like to do something else. But I'll do the job that's in front of me until something else is in front of me. Uh, I, uh, you know, God's will isn't what I enjoy. God's will is what's in front of me. And uh, the fact that we have more than one alternative means that we're not drinking anymore. Because remember, drinking, our lives got narrower and narrower. 
And on you know, page 75, it says, we walk hand in hand with the spirit of the universe on a broad highway. And as we stay sober, our possibilities multiply and multiply and multiply. And that's the magnificence of what we have here. In referring to annual class house cleaning, do you mean all 12 steps annually, 4 and 5, 4 through 9? What does it look like? This is nothing that formal for me at this point. It's an annual State of the Union message with my sponsor. He knows me well enough. We talk every day. But we go and we sit down and we just say, how's it going in my marriage? How's it going with my family? How's it going at work? How are my finances going? Do I have my retirement set up? Am I I doing the right thing there? How am I spending my time? When I got here, I was brain dead and had nothing to do. Now I can't accept all the obligations I'm asked to do, and so I have to learn how to manage my time. It changes when you've been in here for a while. So he helps me to see how to manage my time and if I'm not handling one of my responsibilities as a man correctly. And that's really all it is. Um, And I'm honest with him. Uh, You know, if I've got a problem that surfaces, we talk about it. But for the most part, after a while, I sponsor guys who got 22 years or 21 years or whatever, and, and and we're not talking about sitting down and formalizing all, all 12 steps. The steps are involved, and all the principles in the steps and the traditions are involved. But it's basically just a conversation about where am I in my life right now and how well am I doing in all my areas. What do each of you do for the 11th step? Uh, that's a very good question. You know, I, uh, a, a man gave me a, some action to do many, many years ago, and for many, many years I did this. And what I would do in the morning uh, is exactly what it says on page 86, 87, 88 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I always get those little, uh, I go to the Dollar Tree and get those little composition books. And, um, and every day is a blank page. And I've been doing this since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Early on, as I told you, I couldn't pray. Like the, the words got stuck in my throat. So somebody suggested I wrote a, write a note to God. So if you go back, I still have some of those original things, and it says, to whom it may concern, or hey, you. It was very intimate and um, (laughs) and, uh, very fearful is what it was. But what I'd do is write a little note to God, and in that note I'd ask him to keep me sober, I'd ask him to keep my sponsor sober. And then I would read page 86, 87, and 88. Upon awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. What I do, and I try to get the men that I sponsor to do this. Uh, You know, the Judeo-Christian tradition today started last night. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of what we do and what we've learned is based on that tradition because of the Oxford Group movement. And, And so what I do the night before is I sit down and I get my little yellow pad and number two pencil, and I list the things that I know I'm supposed to do tomorrow. And then when I wake up, I have that list. It says, upon awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. And that's the 24. Now, as I read along, I understand that if God has other things for me to do, I'll do those. So sometimes the things on that list get moved to the next day. But I do what's put in front of me. Okay, so I have some sort of organized thought. And what that does is eliminate a lot of the fear about what's going to happen today. If something causes me to be fearful... And, you know, on page 86, 87, 88, it tells me precisely what to look for because it tells me the symptoms of the spiritual illness, selfishness, fear, that sort of thing, okay? And then at night, I uh, sit down and I open the book again and I read the first paragraph. When we retire at night, we constructively, not destructively, we constructively review our day. And then it asks me certain questions. One of them I have underlined in three colors, have I been thinking of myself most of the day? And, you know, long days, I've been thinking of myself most of the time. Good days, I rarely think of myself. And what that 11-step process does in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous is it trains me how to live my life on a minute-to-minute basis. And it teaches me lessons that I need to learn. And one of the things I did when, uh, before I was married and, and uh, you know, I'd have some roommates, some of the guys, would, you know, would stay at my place for a little while or something, and, uh, and uh, we would sit down and do it together. 
And it says that, you know, that uh, we do it with uh, wives or friends or something like that. We do it together. The other thing I do is I have, I have set prayers that I pray like they suggest. I have certain devotions that I do. Uh, it's a suggestion of Father Bob H., an old friend of mine from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I spend an hour a day in prayer and meditation. No matter how busy I am, I find time to spend an hour. I go to the Eucharistic Adoration Chapel on the way to work and spend a half an hour. And then usually in the evening, I sit in my little prayer room. My wife's theory is if God gave us a house, we ought to give him a room. So we have a prayer room where we hear fifth steps and that sort of thing. And I sit in there at night, and I review my day. And I spend a half an hour doing that, and then I also spend some time making up the list for tomorrow. So that's how I deal with the 11th step. As an AA, what, how should I treat an addict with no alcohol history who wishes to work the 12 steps in AA versus NA? Um, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. If we haven't been drinking, we can't have a desire to stop drinking. So you can't be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, if, you don't have a, if you're not, don't have a desire to stop drinking. So people who are not alcoholics and who don't have a desire to stop drinking, can come to open meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, everybody can. I mean, those open meetings allow people who are professionals to learn about our fellowship, and there's a reason for them. Family members can come to help celebrate birthdays, that kind of thing. But when we get somebody who has a problem other than alcohol, and that's their primary problem, and they don't have, if they have a drinking problem, they're welcome. But if they don't have a drinking problem, what our literature suggests is helpful is to is to tell them that we are a fellowship comprised of people with a common problem, and there may be another program for them, but we can't really accept them as a member. That may seem unkind, but if we don't do that, we won't be around 10 or 15 years from now. We've learned that from the past. And it's really unkind to them to pretend like we have an answer for something that some problem they have that we don't. What changes have you seen in AA? Well, the biggest change I've seen is you got me sober. Uh, I, uh, there, there, of course, there are changes. I mean, the whole world changes. And, uh, and we talked a lot about it this weekend, you know, uh, the singleness of purpose and things like that. And, uh, um, and we don't respond well to rules. But, but there are ways to do things uh, to remind people how it was. That's why I find people like Dick and and uh, Ray G and people like that, the archivists and all that, they're so very, very valuable to us because they carry the history of this fellowship into, the, into today. Um, I remember uh, I, a, a friend of mine visited me from Las Vegas. His name's Billy. He's a wonderful man. And, uh, and we went to meetings for four days, and uh, he helped me do a book study and some things, and uh, and he said to me, he said, I'm amazed. This was in Wilmington. He said, I'm amazed. He said, there was only one person who was anything but an alcoholic in any of these meetings. And it was a new kid in town. And he introduced himself and said he was cross-addicted. So after the meeting, I pulled him aside and I said, pardon me. I said, uh, could I ask you a personal question? He said, yeah. I said, this business of being cross-addicted. I said, every time you walk by a cross, do you throw yourself on it? And... Uh, <laughs> And he laughed, and then I explained to him about our singleness of purpose. And I said, uh, do, you, do you have a desire to stop drinking? He said, yeah. I said, you're a member just like me. And, uh, and he took it very, very well. But I didn't do it in front of anybody. I didn't embarrass him. I didn't do anything. And the other thing that amazed Billy was he never heard one curse word in the four meetings he went to. So it can happen. It doesn't happen because we make a lot of rules. It happens because we live it. Dick mentioned the idea of acting as guardians of the principles, traditions of the old-timers. So what suggestions, examples would you provide to that end so we might be going to attend an AA meeting only to find a BB or CC meeting instead, and if we encounter a weak meeting, what to do? Um, I went through a period, like I do in some areas, where I gripe about things, because I started griping about the meetings, but Griping about meetings or criticizing people doesn't help at all. So what I have done is I have, um, I have uh, made a decision to, in me personally, to support only solution meetings. That would be a big book meeting, a, a speaker meeting, 
a step meeting, a 12 and 12 meeting, an AA literature meeting, um, uh, or a tradition meeting, something where it teaches what we've been talking about this weekend. This weekend has been very structured within AA literature. I mean, this is not various opinions. We may share our experience, but it's based on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so by supporting those meetings fully and not supporting the other meetings, I'm doing everything I can. My job is not to criticize and tell people what, what they're doing wrong. My job is to, to reinforce those who are doing things right. And that's the way I respond. If you reinforce when I'm doing something right, I respond a lot better than if you just come along and tell me you know, what a jerk I am. How do you decide to budget your time properly? Uh, service, you don't deprive uh, one's aspect of your life. I have tried saying yes to everything, and of me and AA, but it as it defects in my home and work life. How can I decide when to say no to AA requests appropriately? It's a very good question. Um, I don't make decisions like that on my own. I discuss them with my sponsor. My sponsor is a very level-headed man who does a lot of service. He does a lot of things. He's a wonderful husband. He runs a business. Uh, He does a lot of things. And I discuss my activities with him. I discuss my schedule with him. And I also discuss them with my wife. I've had some health problems of late, and my wife is very, very concerned about me. And so to make her feel more reassured and happier, I spend some weekends at home with her. And when I'm away, I call her every day and reassure her that I'm just fine. And uh, so I do the service and that sort of thing. I, uh, I put my schedule together and emailed it to my boss. So this is my schedule for 2005. These are the commitments I've been asked to keep. Is this okay with the company? And he emailed me back and said, I'm glad that you do God's work. So it's things upon which we can agree. But I don't have to make those decisions. I have guidance and I have direction. How do you apply the 12 concepts in various areas of your life? And um, I talked at length earlier about the 12 traditions. They're in the 12 and 12. They're also in the big book, the long and short forms of the traditions. And for the first time in the fourth edition, the 12 concepts are in the back of the big book. But an easy way for you to have discussions about these is they put out these, I call our idiot how-to things, but they're illustrated. It's the 12 concepts for world service illustrated and the 12 traditions illustrated, and I think these are real useful. The 12 concepts are the concepts by which we run the business of Alcoholics Anonymous. And not every one of these is universal in its application to my personal life, but a number of them are. And especially if you are an employee or an employer or even in any other relationship, one is the right of decision. If you give somebody responsibility to do something, then give them the right of decision. Don't tell them to do it. If they come back, you don't agree with it, criticize them. That happens with my wife. If I ask her to do something, she doesn't pick out exactly what I would have picked out at the grocery, then I should have gone myself if I was going to complain about it. But she did something. That's her right to do it. If somebody gives me a responsibility, I need the, uh, the, uh, the uh, authority to do it. We have right of participation. Um, that means that all of us are represented in NAA. Well, all of us should be represented in the family. All of us should be represented at work. Right of appeal, if I feel like I've been... It's just a way for me to come and say, hey, to my employer, say, hey, I feel like something didn't happen right here. And if I am, uh, if I am an employer of people, I did something, I learned how to do this in AA. When I would have an annual sit-down with my employees, I would let them evaluate my performance. And I learned some shocking things about my character defects, and I was able to change some of them because they were honest with me. Uh, Substantial unanimity is another of the principles that we use. If we were, whenever we have at least two-thirds majority on decisions, 
then we can feel comfortable that that really is God's will within our fellowship before we move forward on something. If we don't, if it's still a discussion where maybe it's 51% to 49%, we kind of hold on for a while until we can gain that substantial unanimity. It's not up to us individuals to get our way. It's up to God's will, and God's will works through us. And if there's a spiritual reason for us to change something about how we do anything, it won't depend entirely on me to get done. It, it will have a life of its own, and that's why... You know, I'm just up there as a delegate for two years, and then somebody replaces me. That's why the spirit of rotation, that so individuals don't operate the groups. So I would pick up this 12 Concepts for World Service. It gives you that. And again, while it's talking about AA, you can take the same principles and apply them to the rest of your life. What do you do if you're different? I'm only 20 years old. How do I stay in AA being so young? Um... You know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in my 20s, which was pretty young uh, to be an AA. And, uh, but had I not been an AA, I would have died. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I was, I was on the precipice of death. My life was in the toilet. And, uh, you know, we used to, you see a term around AA all the time called terminal uniqueness. You know, and if you're unique, it's terminal. And I'm just another drunk. It doesn't matter now that I'm coming up on 62 years of age. Uh, you know, I like to tell this story. There was a, a lady who uh, got sober in January 73, and she ran around where I got sober, and she scooped up everybody who came in under 30. And we ran together. We were like a rat pack. And we ran together, and uh, we, we hung out with old-timers. We did all this stuff. And last December, the ninth one celebrated 31 years of continuous sobriety. What that means is that if I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter whether I'm 20 or I'm 100. I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not unique. I'm not different. I have a spiritual illness. Alcoholics Anonymous has a solution for what I need. And I always hearken back to what old Buck Doyle told me when he poked me in the chest that day. And I told you before, kid, you're as crazy as an out-of-house rat, but that's not your problem. Your problem is you have a spiritual illness. If you try to solve your problems by uh, trying to figure out your emotional problems, you'll chase your tail till you die of alcoholism. Your solution is spiritual in nature. And it has nothing to do with age. If you get here when you're 20 years old, you're lucky. You're very, very lucky. That means that you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams. Or you can remain unique and do it your way. And then maybe you can get to Skid Row, too. Yeah, I I got sober when I was 27. Our sponsor got sober when he was 24. He now has 46 years. Uh, Did I hear you correctly in saying that the membership growth in AA was flat, root causes and solutions? Um, the while we don't have absolute statistics, the the reports that I've gotten from uh, from our we do a census every three years in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a, a random thing. We have not grown. The growth in AA has been fairly flat for a few years now, and and there seem to be a number of reasons for that. One is there are more and more twelve step programs, NA, CA, other things where some of the people who would have come into AA in the past go to, um, and then uh, uh, we do have one area of particular growth uh, in, in a number of states. In our state, Georgia, uh, for we have probably we got uh, 50 new groups last year, and 40 of them were Hispanic because we're getting more and more Spanish-speaking groups in, and they're growing like crazy. But the rest of the fellowship is not growing nearly as much. Um, and besides the proliferation of other 12-step groups, I be- this is my opinion. This is not written in literature. I-, I believe in what I've seen and talked to other areas and so forth. That is because we dilute the message, and without the power, people don't change. And if you don't change, you don't stay. But if everybody caught the real power of this program, we couldn't have enough rooms for what Alcoholics Anonymous offers. Okay. There's a question for each of us here. Uh, says, Keith, do you think Bill Wilson's white light experience in the hospital was what we call today an NDE, a near-death experience? I think everybody who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous has a near-death experience. (laughs) But 
I think what happened to Bill Wilson was a result of the fact that he had sat down with Abby Thatcher and talked about spiritual principles. And he opened a door that allowed God to enter his life in so powerful a way that it altered the lives of millions of us. I don't look for scientific explanations about what happened. I don't explain miracles away anymore with scientific explanations. What I do is I accept the fact that God loves us so much. He enters into our time. We have experiences that alter the course of our lives and direct us back to him. Dick, your question is, what is the difference between spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? I've had a several spiritual experiences, um, and they are, they are, I believe they are the experiences that God uses to reach me, and they don't have anything to do with anybody else, and your experiences are going to be different. I'll tell you one about lust. Uh, when I've been sober a few years, I was very promiscuous. I went to college in the 60s. I went to California, learned about free love. Uh, I was... That was my thing, and I and I was, you know, I could remember met a member of Sex Addicts Anonymous if I'd wanted to go to eight different programs, and and so forth. But I, I, it was very important to me. I had a lot of, you know, sex with people that I don't even know one nighters and things like that. And when I got sober and after my spiritual awakening and all this stuff, I started to get my feelings back. I started to get my passion for life back. I was starting to get, and I was going out with girls. Um, and I was sleeping with some of them, and I didn't know what to do about it, and so I decided to go to this pastor of this church I'd gone back and made amends to. Uh, I wasn't yet dating the woman that would become my wife, and I, and I went to him, and he didn't judge me at all. He said, well, let's pray about it, and we prayed, and there was this tremendous undulation and this shaking and this light, and it was one of those experiences like Bill Wilson talked about, but I, what I remember was it was almost like the entire room was shaking in such a way that every atom and every piece of fiber in that room didn't exist for a while. I was a part of another kingdom. And it, then it stopped. And that was not a particular answer to my question to God. But three days later when I was in a mall and I was looking at a couple of girls and thought about what it would be like to sleep with one of them, the light went on. If I respected a man in high school, the father, and I went out with his daughter, I treated his daughter with respect. And every one of these women that were out there were the daughter of this God I had just felt so powerfully. And so I needed to treat them as children of God, of daughters of God. That's what it took for me, and that was a spiritual experience, because that was not a normal experience. That was a, an experience in the, in the spirit. My spiritual awakening came about more when I was sitting there, and that priest was explaining what God's will was, and my eyes were opened up. Oh, yeah, God's will is to do the best I can one day at a time. I start to understand what God's principles are. My spiritual awakening is when I'm sitting with a group of men, and this weekend I've cried several times because when I was looking, I was seeing not the character defects, but the real value in each man who's sitting there. That's not me. I'm allowed to see awakening through God's eyes how he sees you. I'm the selfish guy who wants to take care of me. But when I see you as how you can be, and I see the promise in you, I'm seeing you through an awakened, a spiritually awakened eyes. The spiritual awakening is seeing God's presence here. And that's different than a, uh, and a unique experience. I've never been a good student. How do you apply the principles to being a responsible college student? You know, uh, what we're called on to do is to do the very best with what we can. And, of course, discipline is part of that. i never forget my, my brother, Denny, who uh, was a wildly successful man. Um, and I asked him one time, and I asked a number of his friends who were also very successful, I said, to what do you owe your success? And I got a lot of answers like, uh, well, I'm hard driving, I'm this, I'm that, and all the rest of it. And my brother, Denny, opened my eyes. He said to me, you know, I've never wanted the next job. I've always wanted to do the job I have better than anybody ever did it. Denny was in the lower third of his high school class. And he learned in college the value of discipline. And I remember one day his fiance was coming to town, and she came down on a bus. 
And he said to me, would you drive over and pick her up? Uh, because her bus is coming in at 2 o'clock. And he said, I study between 1 and 3. And I said to him, uh, look, I'll pick her up and I'll take her to lunch. And I did, so that he could study from 1 to 3. He's a very disciplined man. He graduated first in his class in graduate school. He did it as a result of discipline. But the great lesson he taught me was he was never looking at the next job. He said, I always try to do whatever job I had better than it had ever been done before. And the result was they kept pushing him up and pushing him up and pushing him up. So we do the best we can. We do what's in front of us as well as we can. As Jim would say, we do the next thing right. Do we ever get the memories of our youth back? When I came in, I had trouble remembering anything, including what happened just an hour ago, and so I had a great deal of difficulty. The doctors told me that it takes about two years for your brain cells, and the, the, the mind is terrific, the brain cells uh, in one area to recover the activity of the old areas. And I, and I believe, unless there's something really significant, that most of the alcoholics I've encountered do get those memories back. What changes in the spiritual awakening is my view of what took place. Because where I before may, was my eyesight was tainted by my resentment and my fear and all this, and I remembered things as being fearful. When I went back to that church and walked through it, and that pastor that was loving helped me see things, now I see what a wonderful, gifted place I lived in, how wonderful it was, how many blessings I had, how many gifts, and I, and I love it. I hated my childhood growing up under the colonel when I first got here because I was a victim. Now I just see how great it was. So much so that last night my wife had given me a DVD player, a new little portable DVD player, and, um, and I carry around that, the, the DVD of the Ten Commandments, that film that I talked about that changed my life, and I was trying to watch it, and I brought everything except the power pack up. And as we know, we can't do much without the power. So, so, um, so last night, after taking the whole projector, I set up in my room my projector, my little speaker system, and just like sitting at the drive-in, I sat in my chair and watched the Ten Commandments, uh, which was a two-hour and twenty-minute or a three and a half-hour movie. But I watched the whole thing last night and sat there crying, remembering being with my parents, and that was a wonderful experience for me. You know, as part of this weekend, I shared that. And it was a, a, an experience from my youth. And I think that as I have grown in the program, I can go more and more back to gifts and gifts and gifts that were given to me back then um, as all of the fears and resentments fall by the wayside. In my home group and others, I have seen a poster stating, think, think, think. And I was wondering why we ask an alcoholic to do this. <laughs> Thank you, Wayne. That's a good question. Um, You know, one of the things we're asked to think about in the book is to think through the drink. Where does the drink get us? To think through the drink. You know, I believe that uh, alcoholics, by and large, are pretty logical people. You know, if you studied philosophy, you studied something called a syllogism. You know, a syllogism has a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. Okay. For example, here's a syllogism. All men are brilliant. Dick's a man, therefore Dick's brilliant. Now, it's logical, but is it true? (laughs) Yeah. Now, I happen to think Dick is brilliant, but I don't think all men are brilliant because I'm a man. So I know they aren't. But uh, we do, we are logical. We're not wise all the time, but we're logical. Things make sense to us, and that's why we do the things we do. And I think it's very, very important to think things through and then to discuss them with our sponsor. Thinking doesn't mean I come up with a solution. Thinking means that I weigh all the evidences and all the aspects of whatever is going to happen. And then I discuss it with my sponsor. Uh, There's a group in our town that has a group tradition that they read at every meeting. We think that 
12 steps are wonderful, and believe anyone from any 12-step pro can share in our meeting. Sobriety is not required to share. This group is listed as an AA group in the GSO directory and the local directory, even though this group has had the group tradition since the beginning. Any thoughts, experience? Um, you always get AA groups that want to be different, that want to be defiant, because they're made up of individuals that want to be different and want to be defiant. Um, the truth is that you you could have a group where everybody could share if at an open meeting, but to be a member you would have to have a desire to stop drinking. So technically that would be okay. However, when you tend to do this, there are meetings. There's a meeting in, in uh, where our sponsor is that's a couples meeting for AAs and Al-Anons. It serves a wonderful purpose, but it's not an AA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting. It's a couples meeting, and so they made a decision not to try to list it. Once you are listed with Alcoholics Anonymous at GSO, once you get a number, it's almost impossible to take it away from you. They, they just, we don't do anything punitive. One of our principles in the, in the concepts is we don't take punitive action. So we don't punish somebody for not working the steps or not working their traditions, but again, I would support meetings that are solution-based and live in the traditions. You both mentioned going to groups uh, that violate the traditions. Do you ever become a, a regular and try to have a particular influence on them? If so, how? Um, I don't know that uh, I say that groups violate traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. What I mentioned was the fact that they don't do it the way they did it when I came in. They're not solution-oriented. They're often problem-oriented. And, um, and you know, my home group... Uh, Actually, in the introduction, they say, if anybody has a problem, we'll discuss it, you know. And, uh, and uh, I didn't read that part of it. Uh, what I did was I prepared a topic and presented it, and the group members were very happy that I did that, right? Um, because, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is not group therapy, Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where we learn solutions, right? And I think one of the, the things that suffer the most in meetings where they discuss problems is sponsorship. You need to sit down. If you have a problem, you need to sit down across the table from the man who's sponsoring you and run that problem past him and benefit from his experience, strength, and hope. Have him put a plan together to help you deal with whatever that problem is. And I think sponsorship has suffered horribly as a result of problem-oriented meetings versus solution-oriented meetings. But I, uh, I don't go to meetings that violate the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I do go to meetings that do it differently than they did when I came in. It doesn't make them wrong. They just aren't quite as useful or helpful as they were. <clears throat> I dream big. How do you follow your dreams while staying in today and in God's will? And um, um, I, in, in Louisville, you spoke right after your first birthday for the first time and um, because they wanted to hear your story then. They gave you a year to and so I remember speaking a little bit after my first birthday. And I got up and I was really serious and I was talking about being so thankful for being here. And of course I, I ramble a lot because my mind still wasn't straight. And the old timers, and I mean the old timers, the guys that got sober in 1943 and 45 and those guys, the guys that were the generation ahead of Jack, came up and said, uh, um, one of them said, you know, you take this thing really seriously, don't you? And I said, oh, yes, sir. And he said, he said, you'll get better. <laughs> they used to do that kind of stuff. I remember an old-timer, Joe Hubbard, came up and he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. And he said, it'll pass. <laughs> and, uh, and what they were telling me was life changes. There are days when people die. There were days when people... But I get better. It doesn't say it gets better. It says I get better. But another guy there, right after I spoke, he said, because I had talked about my life, and there was a suggestion in there that I was, that, that whatever I, God had in mind for me, I was okay, that I didn't need to do what I had dreamed about before. And he said, he said, if you can find out what's in your heart, God will give you 
uh, uh, the desires of your heart. He said, don't accept just sobriety out of this. And we read it in the literature. It says, if you can find out what's truly in your heart, because God puts what's in your heart, not the dirt, not the get all the stuff out. God will give you, help you fulfill your dreams. And I cannot, I've mentioned several stories here this weekend about people when they found humility and found their talent, that their, their lives became much more powerful and profound and useful. It's always useful, just useful. They're useful to other people in ways. And if we're useful to other people, our dreams will be found anyway. Keith mentioned uh, certain times in sobriety, three years, ten years, et cetera, et cetera where uh, there are difficult times. How do you deal with those times and um, the people that you sponsor? I believe that the spiritual journey is a journey of continuing surrender. And, uh, and, and I think that God plans it so that difficult times force us to surrender at a deeper and deeper level to his perfect will in our lives. And my experience has been that there are certain times... Uh, I uh, I really thought at one time that the reason I did all the goofy things I did was because I was drunk. At around 18 months of sobriety, I began, the only time in the 32 years I've been here that I began to drift away from AA. I was making amends at the hospital by working late. I was doing this, I was doing that. And, uh, and my best friend, who was sober one day less than me, was doing exactly the same kind of thing, only he had a relationship, and um, he would buy her beer and watch her drink. And, uh, you know, it's utter insanity. And we were both involved in insanity. And I was at the hospital late, and every morning I'm going to go to a meeting, and then every evening there was a good reason not to go at 18 months. And I um, was at the hospital, and I'm headed, going to drive home, and a gas main had blown up. And so they routed me around the way I'd normally go home. And I went by that stupid church where my meeting was. And the meeting started at 8.30, and here it's 9 o'clock. And there was a parking space right in front of the church. There's never a parking space in front of the church. So I was forced to park there, and I was actually upset. And I went in, and there's a woman talking, right? And, and she's going on and on, and she's talking. And uh, so the meeting's supposed to be over at 9.30. I'm looking at my watch. I've been here a half an hour now, and she's talking too long. And then she said, and I'm sitting next to my buddy who's buying beer for his girlfriend. And, um, and, uh, and so she said, you know, I'm celebrating three years. She said, I would have been celebrating four and a half years, but at 18 months I drifted away from Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought other things were more important. And she said, uh, and I drank. And Mike and I looked at each other, and we grabbed her up after the meeting and took her for coffee. And... Um, and she explained to me that she said, you know, I thought my problem were because I was drunk. She said, my problems turned out to be because I had deteriorated spiritually. And I understood at a year and a half that my problem was spiritual deterioration. I understood at three years that uh, I had brought a lot of trash with me into Alcoholics Anonymous that I had justified. Six years, ten years, twenty years. 32 years, I'm going through another thing, right? And I know what will happen. I'll get through it with the help of my sponsor and my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous and the God of my understanding, and I'll come out of this thing stronger than I've ever been before. I am called on to surrender in another area of my life. The result of surrender is always peace and grace. One. Hey, this is the last one. It says, I'm... Tr- I'm trying to make amends to my son by helping him straighten out his life. He lives with me and is 23 years old. He's going to college but often missing class and does not make the grades he's capable of. Sometimes I think I should throw him out, and other times I feel I should give him a safe place regardless of what he does. How can I best help him get responsible about his own life? Um, the... Uh, uh, I believe that the best thing we can do for anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous or any place else is by setting an example, number one, and by offering unconditional love, number two. God does the work. I believe that I have my own path. I believe that every man here has his own path. If I have said something here this weekend about a spiritual experience that happened to me or about a way that I'm able to to perceive something, it's because God reached me that way. He may have used that film for me. He's going to use something different for somebody else. And if I trust God... 
then I have to trust that God will reach the other person even though I may not be able to reach him. And uh, we have, there's a wonderful program called Al-Anon where they, where they give support to people who are having trouble dealing with family members who have a drinking problem. But it's also a good place just to go if you can go to an open meeting and find out about how you deal with letting go. They, have a, they, have one, uh, they detach with love. And because I believe if I get between God and another person learning his lesson, then I'm trying to do God's work. That's difficult, I know, if you're a parent or if you're a husband or whatever, but I believe it's the only way. And my job is to trust God and clean house, not anything else. The other thing that I do is I let people fail. We learn from failure. Um, You know, our theme this uh, weekend has been to trust God and to clean house. And... um, And I want to say to you that I am profoundly grateful for the opportunity to have been here and to spend this weekend with you. I want to thank the committee again for their kindness and their generosity and their their, uh, willingness to have me here. And I want to thank each and every one of your men for your kind attention. And I want to thank you because I'm glad you're a member of the same organic organization that I am. Thank you.